When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. You join him for The Bigger Picture, where I am joined by Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, if we have time, we're going to be covering three subjects. What would you like to begin with this week? I, I think we have to start, Simon, with... Um, uh, dare I say it, this Boris Johnson government, uh, which we actually haven't discussed too much in the past, but I think it really is time because there was a really good piece by Nick Timothy, who was former advisor to Prime Minister Theresa May, um, a really good comment piece uh, where he was basically arguing that Boris Johnson is learning the wrong lessons from Mrs Thatcher. And what Timothy meant by that was that we hear a lot about fiscal responsibility or warnings against public debt. Uh, ministers increasingly talk about supply side reforms, um, sort of attacks on trade union power, uh, promises of tax cuts now, right to buy, all those things. Um, but this is all rather odd from uh, a, a prime minister um, who's described himself in the past as a Brexiteer, meaning that he's a Brexiteer, but he's also actually a believer in state power and interventionism, rather like Michael Heseltine was. And of course, what was originally at the root of Boris Johnson's government was the idea that the government could level up um, and that it could do audacious and big things. It could, for example, uh, build the HS2 railway line and uh, that somehow that would speed and aid the economy of the Midlands and, and then later the North. Um, the government uh, believed in uh, more autonomy at local and regional level to some extent. They believed um, in, um, in, in sort of London Development Corporation style projects, um, you know, um, that would unleash local potential, as well as a hefty degree of taxation and distribution, all that. And that actually what's happened is that the that the wheels have come off the early rhetoric, that they're now flailing around using the sort of terminology that would be familiar to old school Thatcherites. But what Timothy argues is that really none of this is coherent, uh, none of it has any sort of bottom or is rooted in a coherent strategy um, and that it's just another turning of the wheel of the government that is slightly lost in space or certainly flailing around uh, without you know much meaning or, 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 or many solutions. Um, do we believe that big government interventionism will work? No. Do we really believe that with the sort of standard living crisis we see at the moment um, and stagnant wages and a threat of stagflation, 
that a penny or two off tax or or a cap on oil is going to really help. No, these levers that we've been familiar with and, and, and that we've debated variously, um, uh, what well, all politicians have really for the last half a century, that, that, that they're no longer actually, um, they don't contain the sort of solutions that are appropriate for the sort of problems we face. And I find it really interesting because because I sort of agree. I find that we're in a bind of a conversation and a rhetoric and a polarized debate that strikes me as no longer really rooted in the problems of today. A lot of the institutions we have are failing. They're somewhat out of date and no one is really in any of our political parties willing to really debate some of the really difficult ground truths, I think. Yes, um, Timothy gave a sort of list of some of the problems and, and failures, unaffordable housing, low productivity, insufficient investment, huge geographic inequality, poor skills, low pay, social disaffection. I mean, you know, this is, um, other countries have problems as well, but I mean, these are sort of pretty depressing lists. And he pointed out that in real terms, British workers are getting no more than they did before the financial crash. And that's getting on for well, 15 years ago. Exactly. And uh, uh, what struck me about that list was I thought it was actually fairly pared down. It was a fairly small conservative. <laughs> I mean, the number of people you talk to now who sort of don't really expect to be able to access uh, a 999 ambulance mm. um, uh, in a timely manner, they don't really expect to be able to access the high quality GP services that traditionally they expected. Um, they're not sure that the police are there for them in terms of solving, you know, local crimes, burglaries, whatever. Um, so you sense, don't you, the sort of coming of what well, the sort of crisis which I remember as a child, you know, um, uh, sort of the three day week, the IMF loan of 1976, all these problems. Um, uh, but this time round, will higher or lower taxes um, really do anything effective at all? Or is it actually really tinkering around at the edges and that more meaningful reform is required? The thing that I'm really wondering is, do we need um, a sort of strategic refresh in our statecraft and we need to think more coherently about what the state can do, what it can't do, and that we need to look at some of the underlying institutional architecture that very, very few people are prepared to debate. And I include in things like that, the way we run finance and banking. Oddly enough, I'm reminded of something you talked about, I think it's a year ago, maybe even two years ago, when you were talking about, was it Amman and its plan for the future? and how desperately you felt we needed something similar in this country. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you look at countries like, like Oman, you look at countries like Qatar, you look at countries um, in parts of Southeast Asia, what they do is they have not, you know, great industrial policies that are heavily interventionist, sort of laying the dead hand of the state, mm. but what they do is they have more honest debates about what the state will do 
what it won't do. Um, and, and, they, and they sort of create a vision um, in those areas like skills, like education, um, like investment, where you know, they harness potential. But they do it in a more or in a less partisan way. Seems to be in this country, you know, the Conservative Party is a very strident sort of libertarian faction who don't like the idea of the sort of visionary plans that that, 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 mm. that they have in Oman or Qatar or Southeast Asia. They don't like having a sort of reference document that vaguely maps out what what a government's vision is. Uh, and then you have a left. Um, that are sort of welded to basically a vision of the late 1940s and 50s, which is the welfare state, the NHS as it was. And if you involve any pricing or any entrepreneurship, um, then this is a taboo. You know, if you if you if you touch that third rail of politics, then somehow you should die. But it seems outdated to me. It seems that we are a Euro-Atlantic nation we're an island we can trade with europe we can trade with north america we do diversity reasonably well we have a long way to go on that but we have potentially a global outlook how can we harness that um and what do we need to do in terms of education health welfare tax infrastructure um you know to unleash the potential you know again on the issue of immigration, it, it does seem to me um, that we're not matching the sort of people who want to come to this country with the sort of skills that are needed. Mm. Um, it seems to me that our employment is almost superheated. There is what naturally in any advanced economy, you're always going to have two or three percent unemployment mm. uh, because people take sabbaticals, people can't work for all kinds of medical or mental health reasons. You know, there's a natural rate, but we're at the point where the number of businesses who are looking for people um, now is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of job vacancies. Yet we still are unable, and the British public, or great swathes of it, seem unable or unwilling to liberalise mm -hmm. things like visa regimes so that supply is mixed with demand. So it seems to me that we're often politically in a sort of dialogue of the deaf. And we all, left, right, up and down, need a shake-up. All rather depressing. I mean, you're absolutely right, of course. But if you need something radical, the last thing you'd expect of a government that's only got two years for the ballot box is to suddenly become incredibly radical and come up with fantastic strategies. I mean, they haven't really indicated that they have a strategy at all. And one of the things Timothy talks about in his piece is how one of the big differences was that Thatcher had a plan. Yes, and you know, and what makes this even worse is, I look at the Labour Party, I look at the Labour cabinet, I look at the Labour leadership. I find it boring. I find it stolid. It's had a long time to do some really challenging and innovative thinking. Mm -hmm. I think it has. Tony Blair came in with a vision. He came in with a story, a narrative, you know, a strategy, and he won three elections on the back of it. Mm. Do I see the same in Labour? No, I don't. But this is not just a story in the United Kingdom. One gets the sense, if you look at German politics, French politics, elsewhere, the sort of polarised debates that we've all been familiar with in the post-war world. 
they're all sort of running their course and electorates are bored they're tired of it mm. and they no longer um uh see solutions and you know i think because of the lessons of the 1930s and 40s um people are not thankfully going to be beguiled by charismatic you know extremists you look at the short shrift that jeremy corbyn had or or the bnp you know is no longer a force thank goodness in british politics so i don't think it's likely that the british people are going to lurch to extremes but boy i think they have an appetite to get real and for a grouping a sort of centrist grouping who come up with something genuinely visionary and new tim um, thank you very much time for us perhaps to think about another topic this episode is brought to you by la quinta by window your work can take you all over the place like texas you've never been but it's going to be great because you're staying at la quinta by Wyndham. their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead and after you can unwind using their free high-speed wi-fi tonight la quinta tomorrow you shine book your stay today at lq.com sharing ideas about money this is share radio This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Chair Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, where are we going with your uh, next topic, please? A really good uh, uh, piece by Tony Yates um, uh, in The Guardian um, uh, called The Big Idea, Why We Shouldn't Be Leveling Up. And, And really this piece follows, I think, very well on from what we were just saying basically you know boris johnson brought uh into existence the department for leveling up housing and communities Uh, naming a ministry after a catchphrase uh, you know may suit the rhetoric of a prime minister but has it is it really going uh to be a success is it really going to unleash the British entrepreneurial spirit, and is it really going to deliver solutions? And I think the likelihood is, no, it won't. Why? Because our politics are riven with contradictions. Um, the, the Conservative government will talk about the entrepreneurial spirit, it will talk about levelling up, but is it really doing anything with the housing crisis or the cost of living crisis? You know, um, do most MPs, Tories and members of other parties, they might say that we need more housing, but when it actually comes to planning liberalizations and new properties in their own constituencies, do they really support that? Or do they want uh, to you know, carry on keeping prices high and the existing voters sort of happy? So uh, this is a very good article that provides, I think, a powerful critique on this whole well, dare I say, the spin around this government's approach to levelling up. Um, and again, it says that there are small state libertarians in the Tory party, but the, they talk the talk. But when it comes to voting, um, will they really walk the walk of supply side reform and liberalisation? No, they won't. So um, what the article basically says um, is that uh, we're now in a world where there are huge problems um, lots of debt, uh, uh, public and crucially privately. Um, p- 
people are really struggling. Um, uh, the NHS waiting lists are, you know, unspeakably long. Public services are failing. Uh, the gap between real funding per head in state and private schools is widening. And what it says is we have a real socio-economic crisis. And that instead of trying to have a ministry of leveling up, um, what we need to do is again to set out a broad set of objectives um, um, and that what we need is to fund certain things and fund them well um, and, and deal with the worst aspects of inequality, um, but in a sense, uh, um, allow then the economy um, uh, to, to, to go for growth, to go for innovation and go for growth. Um, what it's doing is it's starting to tease out some sort of viable vision for the future, uh, which it seems to me that both front benches or main front benches in Parliament are, are failing to do. Yes, you can't help feeling that almost inadvertently the government is managing to level down rather than level up. Exactly. And, you know, uh, if you were being really unkind uh, uh, about the realities of political economy, um, then you would say that when you have a politician of any stripe who says, you know, uh, uh, the government is going to produce motor cars, hmm. watch out for motor cars getting really crap. You know, when the government says, don't worry, we're going to do all your health care, it's going to be great. Well, wait for a waiting list of six or seven million. Um, you know, when the government says um, it, 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 it's going to do whatever, often the story, the unintended consequence is that de facto the opposite happens. Um, um, and one of the things that we do in this country is when politicians uh, agree any strategic project that they think that they should manage, unlike France, where they set usually fairly narrow constraints. So if they're going to build a railway, they build a railway. What we do is we say, well, we're going to build a railway. Um, oh, and it must have these aspects. It must meet these green criteria. Um, then it must meet these skills shortages. Oh, uh, then it must, and we sort of add on mm -hmm. 30 different dimensions. And what comes out of something is an enormous blamange that often you know, doesn't satisfy many people. Um, whereas in France, they, you know, when, they, when the government do do a strategic project, it's narrowly defined and boy, do they deliver it. So um, the message of this article, again, and I think it's important, I think it's, you know, it is coming from the center left, but the, but the message is sort of economically, don't fall into the fixed quantity of wealth fallacy and, and, and think of equality in, in those terms. But think about decent education, decent health and social care provision. Think about those things that the government can do in fairly direct and simple terms, but then sort of confess what the government can't do. And if necessary, unleash potential in that area. And you can do that in a for-profit setting. You can do it in a not-for-profit setting. You can do it you know, through a myriad of different ownership philosophies and different types of institutions. Yes, one's reminded reading both pieces and listening to you of, of Ronald Reagan's much quoted words, the most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. Indeed, yes. absolutely right. Yeah. But, but what's also terrifying for many people is when, when the government says, don't worry, we're here to help, 
And then when you need them and you knock on their door, they're not there. Yes. And at the moment, that's the experience of a lot of people as well. People have paid their taxes, they've paid their money. Where's the ambulance? Where's the GP? Where's the policeman or woman? Yes. Um, you know, it's yes. or police officer. It's you know, that's the experience. The the issue with good governance and viable political economy is to get the right balance, crucially to get the right incentives and to have different types of organization doing different things within a coherent framework it's not all privatized it's not all nationalized it's not all for profit or not for profit it is be honest and work out what public and private can and cannot do and then get on with it uh, Tim, a couple of depressing topics there. I challenge you to produce something a little bit more cheerful for our next topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I'm talking to Tim Evans, professor at Middlesex University. Tim, um, what is our final topic? I think our final topic has to be the Queen's uh, Platinum Jubilee that, that's just passed, because in many ways it was a masterclass um, in strategic communications and statecraft. Um, it, it obviously it ranged over several days. It started with uh, uh, Trooping Colour. Um, it then went uh, through a service of Thanksgiving uh, at St Paul's Cathedral. Um, and then there was um, a concert uh, uh, with all different types of entertainer and singer and dancer and musician. And then it all culminated an extraordinary sort of parade and jamboree um, that, that rove down the Mall and went past Buckingham Palace. And what was really striking about the package of those different events was how it resonated with a, diver a diverse range of socioeconomic groups in Britain and, and different generations, and also different mindsets and philosophies. So, you know, if you're, I don't know, very traditional and you love the pageantry, well, Trooping the Colour, you know, it was clearly for you uh, an annual uh, event that's very much in the what you might call the, the military and defense fabric of the nation and it was a beautiful event and it, and it, and it was stunning um if uh you are uh, uh not uh secular but you know you're spiritual uh and you're uh committed to one of the great faiths then um the uh the service um, uh, in St Paul's Cathedral was clearly for you. Beautiful singing, but, you know, lots of people there from lots of different faiths and traditions and denominations. And it seems to me that modern events in uh, sort of state occasions, be they at Westminster Abbey, uh, St George's Chapel, Windsor, or, or indeed St Paul's, they build a, a beautiful bridge between the modern everyday world of the secular with the world of faith not just mm. christianity but judaism um, um and uh, islam and indeed many other traditions i recently met 
or was privileged to meet one of the leaders of, of Britain's Zarathustran uh, tradition. He was explaining to me how involved the Zarathustrans and others are, are on all kinds of interesting occasions. So that was good. And then, of course, you came to that wonderful uh, sort of celebration, the concert that started off again uh, with Queen and Brian May and the guitar. But what struck me about that was, yes, there was the doffing of cap to perhaps our generation. You know, there was Elton John and, uh, and, and, and a few singers of our generation. But boy, was it fun to sit with my 16-year-old daughter and her friend and see them uh, being able to engage this uh, festivity because so many of the singers and so many of the dancers uh, were people who they were familiar with. Mm. There were lots of you know people for, of different color and there were lots of people of different traditions. There was some extraordinary performances by a rapper um, and lots of, uh, lots of you know, modern dance and modern pop singers, dare I say it, that perhaps you and I do not the name, know the names of, mm -hmm. and all the better for it. And then um, there was also uh, this extraordinary bringing together of so many different charities and organisations and groups that are part of the Queen's story from different parts of Britain. Part of the year I lived down in Somerset, the local town is um, uh, Bridgewater. Bridgewater is the home of Carnival, and there was an enormous float uh, uh, that was part of the Sunday festivities going down the mouth. And it just struck me that by, by age group, by socioeconomic group, uh, by generation, uh, by you know, every race, creed, gender, you name it, this was the most extraordinarily enriching um, series of events. And again, it just painted the picture of the Queen coming to the throne in the early 50s. Not only has how adaptive her reign has been, but how Britain in this great Elizabethan age has changed. And I thought as a masterclass in statecraft, it really was a lesson. And very, very few nations, very, very few countries have been able to be so reflexive and so adaptive um, in what is actually a comparatively short period of time. It's only 70 odd years. Tim, thank you very much indeed. Um, you've been listening to Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, I hope you'll be back with me in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.